Chronicle of the Pharaohs by Peter A. Clayton. This is the reign-by-reign record of the rulers and dynasties of ancient Egypt. I'm going to start in the introduction. The Chronology of Ancient Egypt. In the early 6th century BC, Ceylon, the Athenian statesman and legislator, traveled to Egypt. There he visited the temple in the city of Nocratus in the Delta, a city recently settled by Greeks from Miletus. Solon, as a great statesman from a great city, was justly proud of Athens and its long history, but he was sharply put in his place by the priest of the temple with whom he was discussing history when they tartly reminded him, You, Hellenists, Greeks, are but children. They meant, and rightly so, the Greek history could not in any way equate in time and content with that of Egypt. In this way, they were correct, but it is interesting to reflect that the priests themselves were only the inheritors of a long historical tradition that stretched back almost 3,000 years. Whilst they obviously had sources to hand, which are no longer extant today, they were living at a time when the grandeur of ancient Egypt was long past, and we do not know exactly what historical records were then available to them. That same detailed records existed is proved by the fact that Manetho, a Greco-Egyptian priest born in the Delta, was able to write a detailed history of Egypt 300 years later in the 3rd century BC. Manetho and the History of Egypt Manetho's Egyptian history, as known as, also known as Notes About Egypt, gives us the basic structure or skeleton of Egyptian chronology that we use today. He divided Egyptian history into dynasties, essentially ruling houses, and we recognize 30 of them from the unification of Egypt circa 31 BC, 3100 BC, excuse me, down to the death of the last native Egyptian pharaoh, Nectanebo II, in 343 BC. Sometimes the last phase of ancient Egyptian history after this date has two dynasties added, the 31st and 32nd, which are the second Persian period and the Macedonian rulers linked with the Ptolemaic dynasty, which ends with the suicide of the last of the Ptolemies, Cleopatra VII, in 30 BC. Curiously, although great reliance is placed on Manetho, no full text of his work survives. Perhaps one day a papyrus edition will be found, possibly coming from one of the cities of the Fayum, which have produced so much literary and historical material on papyri from the Greco-Roman period. Manetho's history is known to us only by chance since it was highly thought of in antiquity, and several writers whose works have survived quoted extensively from it. Principal amongst those was Josephus, in his Jewish Antiquities, and the Christian Sextus Julius Africanus, whose chronicle comes down to C.A.D. 220. And the bishop of Caesarea, whose writings add another 100 years into the early 4th century. So 500 years later, the work of the last two writers was used as a basis for a history of the world by George the monk, who was secretary to the Byzantine patriarch, Tarasius. 
All these authors took what they wanted for their own purposes from their sources, and so Manetho's account only exists in fragments within these later works. Manetho's sources were very mixed. He obviously had access to temple records, since we know that he was a priest in the temple of Heliopolis, the biblical city of An. His name itself has overtones of learning because it appears to have been associated with Thoth, the ibis-headed god of wisdom who invented hieroglyphs. It may mean beloved of Thoth or possibly gift of Thoth. He had sources such as the official papyrus histories, the sacred books in the temple, and, not least, the historical inscriptions on the temple walls, such as the king list described below. Ramses III's account of his battles with the Sea Peoples at Medinet Habu and many more have not been preserved. To all these possible sources, however, he added a lot of popular traditions and stories of the kings, some of which are far from credible. He was also, obviously, conversant with the writings of Herodotus, the Greek historian, who had visited Egypt around 450 BC and written much about the land and its history in Book 2 of his History. Egypt Chronology, the Evidence from Inscriptions from an incomplete and variously corrupt literary history, it is possible to examine some of the actual written sources. Whilst they had survived from ancient Egyptian times, after about the end of the 4th century AD, they could no longer be read. The latest dated inscription in Egyptian hieroglyphs occurs at the Temple of Philae in AD 394. Thereafter, the key was lost, although many scholars during the European Renaissance, and later the Jesuit priest, Kircher, made valiant attempts at decipherment, often with incredible results. In 1761, another priest, the Abbe Jean-Jacques Barthélemy, published a paper in which he suggested that the oval rings in which a number of the hieroglyphic signs occurred enclosed royal names. It was working from those ovals now called cartouches, that Jean-Francois Champollion was able to crack the code of Egyptian hieroglyphs with the Rosetta Stone. This odd-shaped slab of black basalt was found by a French officer of engineers, Lieutenant P.F.X. Bouchard, serving with the Napoleonic expedition in Egypt at Fort Julian at the Rosetta mouth of the Nile in 1799. It is inscribed in three scripts representing two languages. The upper portion is written in Egyptian hieroglyphs, the center in the Egyptian Demotic script, and the lower section is in Greek. The latter was easily translated, revealing that the inscription, the Decree of Memphis, is a decree of Ptolemy V, dated to year 9 of his reign, 196 BC. With this as a base, Champollion was able to work toward his eventual epic-making paper, Lettre à M. Dacier, in 1822, which opened the floodgates to the decipherment of Egyptian hieroglyphs. Apart from priestly inscriptions, such as the Rosetta Stone, the Shabaka Stone, and other such as the Sihel Boulder inscription, there are only a few sources with actual lists pertaining to Egyptian history and chronology. 
References to small, specific areas of chronology, often only reflecting an individual's part in it, occur, but the evidence is slight and often difficult. The earliest evidence surviving is the Palermo Stone, which dates from the 5th dynasty, 2498 to 2345 BC. One large section of this black diorite slab is in the Palermo Museum in Sicily, and smaller fragments are in the Cairo Museum and the Petri Museum, University College, London. The Palermo fragment is inscribed on both sides and records some of the last pre-dynastic kings before 3150 BC, followed by the kings through the through to Neferirkare in the mid-5th dynasty. The royal list of Karnak, now in the Louvre, has a list of kings running from the first king down to Tuthmosis III, 1504 to 1450 BC. It has an added advantage in that it records the names of many of the obscure kings of the second intermediate period, dynasties 13 to 17. The royal list of Abydos is still on the walls of the corridor in the halls of ancestors in the magnificent temple of Seti I. It shows Seti with his young son, later Ramses II, before a list of the cartouches of 76 kings running in two rows from the first king to Seti I. The kings of the second intermediate period are not given, neither are they the cartouches of the king at the end of the 18th dynasty after Amenhotep III, who are not considered acceptable because of their association with the Amarna heresy, that being Akhenaten, Smenkare, Tutankhamun, and I. A badly damaged duplicate of this list, but arranged in three rows instead of two, was found in the nearby temple of Ramses II, known as the Abydos King's List. It is now in the British Museum. One other list inscribed on the stone is the Royal List of Saqqara, now in the Cairo Museum. It was found in the tomb of the royal scribe Thaniri at Saqqara and has 47 cartouches. Originally, it had 58. Running from Anegib of the First Dynasty to Ramses II, again omitting those of the Second Intermediate Period. Egyptian Chronology, the Royal Canon of Turin. The finest record of chronology of the Egyptian kings is unfortunately the most damaged and now incomplete. It is a papyrus known as the Royal Canon of Turin, in which museum it can be found. Originally the property of the King of Sardinia, tragically it was badly packed and severely damaged during transportation. The list of the kings, originally over 300 of them, is written in a fine, literate hand in the hieratic script on the back of a long ramicide papyrus, which has accounts on the front or recto side. This dates it to having been written about 1200 BC. Like the scraps remaining from Manetho in the first line of the Palermo stone, it begins with dynasties of gods, which are followed by those of earthly kings. A useful aspect is that it gives the exact length of each reign in years and even months and days. 
Its condition is such that piecing the fragments together is like solving a gigantic jigsaw puzzle with many pieces missing. So that what would have been the premier source for Egyptian chronology is now a nightmare. Fixing true dates by the stars. Even with the chronological information available, as outlined above, it may come as a surprise to realize that it is extremely difficult to fix true or absolute dates in Egyptian chronology. Most of the information given in the inscriptions mentioned is relative, and that it shows a sequence of kings relative to each other with sometimes a length of time between each reign, but to fix them in an absolute framework is a different matter altogether. Absolute dates from ancient Egypt rely on astronomical dating. This is done by reference to the civil and astronomical calendars in a complicated calculation involving the Sothic cycle of 1,460 years based on the rising of Sirius, or Sothis, the dog star. The ancient Egyptians knew that the year consisted of 365 days, but they made no adjustment for the additional quarter of a day each year, as we do with leap year every four years at the end of February. Hence, their civil and astronomical calendars were gradually moving out of synchronization and could bring about extremes of dating between the two. Eventually, every 1,460 years, the two calendars coincided and were correct for a short time until they gradually became out of step again until the end of the next cycle. The rising of Sirius was, ideally, supposed to coincide with the New Year's Day in the civil calendar, but did so only ever every 1,460 years. The 3rd century AD grammarian Censorinus records that in AD 139, the first day of the Egyptian civil year and the rising of Sirius did actually coincide, this being the end of the Sothic cycle. This phenomenon is also confirmed by a reverse type on the billion tetradrams issued at the mint of Alexandria with a standing figure of a haloed phoenix and the Greek word aeon, indicating the end of an era. It is also dated by the characters L.B. to regnal year 2 of the emperor Antonius Pius, which fell between 29 August A.D. 138 and 28 August 139. It is possible, working backwards, to deduce that comparable coincidences had occurred in 1317 B.C. and 2773 B.C. The occurrence of a heliacal rising of Sirius is recorded in the seventh year of the reign of Sunisret III of the 12th dynasty. The event is dated to the 16th day of the fourth month of the second season in the seventh year of the king. There were only three seasons, not four, in ancient Egypt. The inundation, sowing, and harvest. Then the cycle began again. By calculating the coincidences of 1317 BC and 2773 BC, this rising can be fixed at 1872 BC. Another such sighting recorded 
occurred on the ninth day of the third month of the third season in the ninth year of Amenhotep I. This produces a date somewhere within a 26-year range in the second half of the 16th century BC. Since it cannot be quite so closely tied to the Senesret date.